Welcome to Talking Direction. I'm Gabriel Stelion Shanks, the Artistic Director of the Drama League, and I'm here again with my friend, co-host, and Associate Artistic Director, Nylon. Hi, Nylon. Hey, Gabriel. Hey, everyone. Hello, everybody, and to all of you, welcome back. Our guest today is, I think anyone would agree, one of the living legends of the American theater. Jerry Zachs is a name known by generations of artists and trusted by audiences to deliver a joyous time at the theater. Born to Jewish survivors of World War II in Germany, Jerry would immigrate with his family to the U.S. as a child and strive to make his family proud. Now, historically, that might have been as a lawyer or a doctor, but the theater bug took one heck of a bite out of him, and those of us in his audiences have been very glad ever since. Jerry has won four Tony Awards for directing, three for Best Direction of a Play for The House of Blue Leaves in 1986, Lend Me a Tenor in 1989, and Six Degrees of Separation in 1991, as well as one for Best Direction of a Musical for his incredible work on the revival of Guys and Dolls in 1992. He has been a consistent force on Broadway ever since, with productions including Anything Goes, Smokey Joe's Cafe, A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum, La Caja Folle, Little Shop of Horrors, A Bronx Tale, Sister Act, Losing Louie, Meteor Shower, Hello Dolly, and two shows this season, the current revival of The Music Man starring Hugh Jackman and Sutton Foster, and the musical version of Mrs. Doubtfire starring Rob McClure. Now add to this four Drama Desk Awards, two Outer Critics Circle Awards, an OBI, and SDC's George Abbott Award for Lifetime Achievement in the Theater. I am guessing he is running out of shelf wherever he keeps all of his trophies. Zax has also directed more than 30 productions in New York, and they've been led by collaborators like Nathan Lane, Whoopi Goldberg, Steve Martin, Bette Midler, Stockard Channing, and Patina Miller. He directed the award-winning film Marvin's Room, starring Meryl Streep and Diane Keaton, and Who Do You Love?, which was featured in the Toronto Film Festival. A founding member of the Ensemble Studio Theatre, where he serves on the board of directors, Jerry graduated from Dartmouth in 1967, received an MFA from Smith College in 1969, and then was awarded an honorary Doctorate of Fine Arts from Dartmouth in 1999. And to top it all off, in 2013, he was inducted into the Theater Hall of Fame. Today, he's here with us, even as there is construction happening in the apartment above him, so you may hear a little of it during portions of our conversation. But it's all in a day for this incredible director. Please welcome to Talking Direction, Jerry Zachs. Hi, Jerry. Hello, guys. How are you? We are great. Thank you so much for being here. Yeah, listen, you know, uh, listening to that introduction, I, uh, it's very, very flattering. I got very excited. <laughs> <laughs> it's been yeah, an it's incredible career. We're, we're really excited to talk to you about this incredible career you've had. Sure. Me too. Absolutely. And I wonder if we begin a little bit at the beginning. Uh, Jerry, for someone with such an impressive resume as a director, and, and I recently learned that you started your career as an actor. Yes. And a, a pretty successful actor, acting career. Um, um, they got you to Broadway for your first time and had you in the likes with uh, Neil Simon and Christopher Durang. And I just wonder, what made you transition from acting to directing? Oh, it's a great question. It was um, it was uh, it, it was not predictable. That's for sure. I, because I loved acting. I loved it. I did it for ten years. Uh, never had to take a day job, which I was particularly proud of, because there was also there was always 
something to act in. And I just loved it. As a member of the Ensemble Studio Theater, a colleague of mine, a colleague of mine showed me a play and said, I want to play this part. Do you want to direct it? We'll just do it as a workshop. And that was the that was back in 1978, I think, or 77, some, somewhere in there. And um, I had never contemplated directing. I had no desire to, to direct, but I agreed to do it and discovered that I loved the uh, act of choreographing life amongst actors. I love very much. And I also loved not having to be on stage trying to remember lines. I enjoyed, <laughs> I enjoyed being the being in the back and watching the choreography being executed or not. And uh, that's how it began. Uh, I, I accidentally directed a play and then that led at the Ensemble Studio Theater also to directing Sister Mary Ignatius Explains It All For You, mm. which then went on to have a five-year off-Broadway run uh, produced by Andre Bishop um, and Playwrights Horizons. So um, suddenly I found myself as a, an actor slash director, and then over the next 10 years became just the director. I think the phrase you just said about choreographing life feels <laughs> feels like a great way to talk about not only directing, but about your career, there is something joyous, I find, in a Jerry Zach's production. There's a lot of life. How how do you come to that conversation, um, stepping away from acting and into the directing chair, of um, having to choreograph a life on stage? What, what, what excites you about that work? The possibilities. The possibilities are infinite and there is no such thing as perfection. So you keep striving for it. You know, Browning said a man's reach should exceed his grasp or what's a heaven for. Couldn't apply more to directors. We never get it perfect, but we can never stop trying to get it right. And uh, uh, that that's, it's that process uh, that, that I love so much, you know, um, the need to spread joy in the theater is very primal in me. As you mentioned in my intro, my parents uh, came from a war, came, escaped the Holocaust, you know. Uh, they were afraid of being killed for several years on a daily basis. Uh, I was born into those parents, and, and I found as a young child that the antidote to the sense of foreboding that, you know, informed our household was comedy, watching watching comedy on television, laughing, mm-hmm. laughing, uh, laughing What was the thing that made me feel good. It was either laugh or worry about something, you know, usually something terrible uh, happening. Um, that's just how I was brought up. Um, so so, so the, the, the need to laugh was very basic in my life. The need to spread laughter to an audience uh, was something that was so, was something that I discovered when I fell in love with the theater. I fell in love w- with the theater w- while I was in college, and when I saw a production of Wonderful Town, I had never seen a, a musical before, and the feelings that it triggered in me seeing that show of pure joy, happiness. Uh, uh, it it was. Um, it was almost religious, you know, I wanted to stand up and cheer. And I have found that in my career, since I saw that in the 60s at Dartmouth, um, my most successful shows, and I'm not talking 
ticket sales. I'm talking about the ones that make me happiest are the ones that create the same uh, uh, um, effect in an audience as what was as Wonderful Town created in me when I saw it. Does that make right. sense? It makes complete sense. You it know, makes complete sense. I mean, I, 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 it, it rankles me that people somehow feel occasionally that, oh, it's just comedy. It's easy. It's just having fun. It's determined to simply entertain. I don't think folks know how much, how much work goes into to getting that right. Anyway, that's it. I think I, I think that's exactly maybe what we could unpack, Jerry. I saw a quote from you saying that. Um, um, comedy is forever humbling and, and yeah. it warmed my soul. Um, <laughs> and I, I just want, I wonder if you would unpack that quote a little bit sure. and maybe speak about your, your, you've done so many comedy and different types of comedies and why do you keep going back to them? Well, it's, it's endlessly stimulating, you know, in rehearsals, you create life amongst the actors, you choreograph that life based on what the scene demands. And if it's a comedy, you think you're creating something that is funny. Uh, there is only one barometer of whether something is funny or not, and it's whether it gets a laugh. Everything else is noise. Uh, and so you don't find that out until you get in front of an audience, which happens on the evening of the invited dress rehearsal and then into previews. And, and when, that when that happens, that's when the real work begins the real as opposed to the theoretical and uh every it's it's humbling because you find out very quickly whether what you thought was funny is funny and you're surprised to discover something that you didn't anticipate was going to be funny funny getting a laugh and then you and and so it's it's you, you know for me previews are the critical time a critical time to make changes to improve the show based on what the audience is telling you. And it's humbling because just when you think you've got it all figured out, and I've been doing this a long time, happily, and you know, I like to think, well, I've got a certain amount of knowledge and information and instincts that have been honed. And, and then something that I think will get a laugh won't get a laugh. And I have to figure out why. Now, that's also a lot of fun. Generally, it's because of dishonesty or mm. try, trying to get a laugh mm -hmm. with a lie in terms of behavior. But, you know, so uh, um, I'm rambling a bit, but um, that, that's, you, you know, I, I, that's why it's humbling, because you, you can't. You, I went back to see Music Man yesterday, you know, and I had five notes in the first 10 minutes you know, about something that wasn't as sharp as it could have been or something wasn't as vivid as it could have been and needed to be. And so I just, I sort of, I, I consider all of my work a, a work in progress as long as the show is actually running. Well, and it, it makes me also think not only is comedy humbling and, and the laugh is the great barometer, but also I'm thinking of the shows that I've seen of yours where the laughs are uh different i you know what i think all of us who saw that your incredible revival of guys and dolls remember the humor that you had mined in that show um which is a classic american musical but then i think about six degrees of separation which where guerre's comedic timing yeah. and and what is in that script I, my jaw was on the floor yeah. from the opening moments of the of 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 this so you know 
when I think about the variety of of comedy that you have created and and the way you come to it, it makes me really want to ask you about actually the last few years um, where we have been um, in this weird time, you know, right before the pandemic, you direct one of the great uh, hits of the last decade, the revival of Hello, Dolly with Bette Midler and and David Hyde Pierce. And then I'm guessing you find yourself in pre-production on The Music Man while also putting up Mrs. Doubtfire. But Mrs. Doubtfire only makes it to the fourth preview before yeah. COVID shuts us down. That's right. And, and then there is this pause while COVID does what it does to our industry. So I'm really curious, maybe in the context of comedy, but also as a director, what is it like to um, hold a production together over that period of time to find humor in this moment? Um, did did your thinking about these shows change at all during that time? What changed was it gave me more time to prepare. It just gave me more time to prepare. Uh, originally, um, the timeline, I think, was we began conversations about Music Man in late 18, uh, simultaneous, and, and, and those were the earliest conversations. And then I was also working on, and by that I mean reading the script, the, 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 uh, the published script, going back, doing tremendous amounts of research on the earlier versions. There were 37 versions of the script that Meredith Wilson wrote. I, really? I read, yeah, yeah. And I read all of those and I read all of the correspondence between himself and the stage manager in the London you know, production. And there, there, there was, it gave, and it was also a time during which, um, I spent uh, beginning to contemplate working on Doubtfire as well. Um, long story, trying to make this long story shorter, we opened Doubtfire in Seattle in, this, in December of 2019. And up to that point, we had, done, had conversations about casting in a music man and uh, set design, certainly, but we weren't in high gear with music man. Uh, so Doubtfire, it's important to note that I was never doing both those shows at the same time. That would be a physical impossibility. And it's silly for anyone to even think that. I did do them consecutively in a highly choreographed uh, schedule, bit of scheduling. Uh, and by that, I mean, we we opened uh, uh, Doubtfire in Seattle in, in winter of 19. And then we started previews uh, with for Doubtfire in Mar- February, March of 2020, with the idea that we would do Music Man in the fall of 2020. That was the original plan. So I had it all worked out very comfortably and doably. And then, of course, we all know what happened. COVID hit and everything stopped. But we continued to, um, you know, we continued to prepare, discuss, plan both productions via Zoom. We did. We had to do everything via Zoom. Wow. Um, yeah, and it was, um, and it worked out fine. You know, the only thing, uh, you know, Zoom was pretty good for a lot of things, particularly conferences and design sessions, and you know, with screen sharing and everything. But um, we got, you know, we after we shut down, we we all disappeared for about, I guess, sixteen, eighteen months, something like that, and finally. Um, we got new dates and those new dates were for Doubtfire to open in the fall of uh, 
2022, I guess. Is that right? No, fall of uh, fall of 21. Okay. Yes. Mm -hmm. And and then and then uh, Music Man would follow in the in the winter of 2022. And that's more or less what happened, except that uh, Doubtfire had to go on hiatus at the beginning of the year. And the, the the busiest let's put it this way the busiest I, I, I that I that I found myself was um, I had worked out the schedule finally that Doubtfire would have a week's previews before I began rehearsals for Music Man, and um, that seemed to be very doable. What it meant was because knowing that the first week or two of rehearsals of Music Man would be primarily devoted to teaching music and choreography, I knew that I could attend the Dowfire previews in a responsible way. The, the tricky part was when they overlapped. And so for about two weeks, I would go to Dowfire, I would go to Music Man rehearsals at 10 a.m. I would leave at one uh, to do notes on Dowfire. I would see that uh, that evening's performance of Doubtfire and go back to rehearsing the Music Man in the morning session from ten to oh, one no. or two, and I would and I did that until Doubtfire opened, at which time I was able to give one hundred percent of my time uh, when it was most needed, which is to say after the songs and the dances had been taught. Does that make sense? Yeah. It yes. sounds exhausting, but it, it makes was, it, it makes sense. <laughs> it was exhilarating. I'm I'm I wanted to say I want I'm 75 years old and the idea of working on two great new shows. If you had told me 20 years ago that that's what I'd be doing, I would have laughed at you. But that's why I consider myself very lucky. Very, very lucky. Lucky. I mean, yeah. it's weird. I, I love the humbleness of lucky. No, no. no. And, and, I, I also, I, I, go for it. Go for it. No, no, no. no. It, it's it's false modesty. Believe me. I mean, <laughs> it, 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 totally. You know, if I thought that it was only luck, you know, we wouldn't be having this conversation. I have devoted yeah. my life to learning this wonderful craft. And I wish I had the, the chance to demystify it or demythologize it to younger people who are contemplating directing because there's so much nonsense that's uh, uh, spread about the craft that you know and, and it's the same with acting and auditioning and uh, uh, um, so yes no it's not luck there's a lot of craft that I've accumulated and and I've also, and let me just say this clearly, I have a great associate named Steve Edlin. I have two fantastic production stage managers at Downfire Music Man. And amongst us all, we were able to meticulously schedule time so that I never had to be in two places at the same time. And um, it was exhilarating. <laughs> and I'm exhausted. <laughs> <laughs> and I love that. And, and, and maybe to transition into digging at your craft mm -hmm. um you have so many amazing shows under your belt and I, i'm curious about how you run your rooms yeah. and i heard that you only have closed rehearsals yeah yeah um um would you i think it's so important about how we begin right yeah and i think the the so many artists especially directors try to have what they think of as the perfect first day and i wonder if you would describe to us how you yeah. Organize and shape your first day of rehearsals. What? Good question. 
My first day of rehearsal is critical, not so much for what we accomplish uh, in uh, uh, the, the work, so much as it is about setting the tone of how rehearsals are going to be run. So to that end, I don't do a read through of the play on the first day uh, or the musical. I think that's just silly and useless and exposes the actors in a way that I wouldn't want them exposed. Um, I make it, does that, does that make sense? Yes, yeah. it does. Well, you're asking them to perform the show <laughs> without having done any work on the show. And even if you call it the first read through, whatever you call it, there's people listening and there are actors performing. And it's barbaric to put the actors in that kind of a position, A. Uh, B, what I also make clear in a rather long-winded speech, as I'm doing right now, is what I expect the how I expect the rehearsal room to be do, uh, run, and what the rehearsal room means to me. Uh, it's a place where no one can ever embarrass anyone else. It's a place where no one's personal agenda can never upstage the work ever. It's a place where no one, no actor, gives any other actor's notes ever, because that that that's just madness. Um, it's a place where I expect communication. That is to say, if you're going to be late, let the stage manager know. Common civility, you know, is what I make clear I expect. And if we have that, we will have a lot of fun. So those are my, those, those I'm probably forgetting a couple of things that I insist on, but that's the basic gist of, of the answer to your question. Um, first day, I make, I want to make sure everyone understands what the work is going to be like in the room for the next five months. I don't let anybody into the room to watch rehearsal because it puts the actors in an exposed position when they're not ready. Um, producers will let me know in advance when they want to come see something and I will let them know if it's okay because there is a certain point in rehearsals in the room where I'm going to want the producer to come in. I'm going to want a little objectivity, you know, but not until I think we're ready, not until I'm ready to present a piece of the show. So um, I'm, I did. I, I think I just answered your question. You you absolutely did, I think, uh, answer Nyland's question, but it makes me think of another question that comes to us a lot as an organization that you know, spends our time supporting early career directors, many who are just having those kinds of moments of, yeah. of organizing large scale rooms, of yeah. having the pressures of producers coming in and all of that. Um, obviously, if you're Jerry Zachs, there's a there's a, yeah. a, a, a sort of a authority where you can have that. But I wonder if you have advice for anyone younger uh, in your in, in their journey in this, yeah. of sort of what happens when the producer wants to come too early, or what happens if you know guests are trying to come in and you're you're not. Do you have any techniques yeah. or tips that you use to sort of say no? The actors really need this space right now. Sure. You know, again, uh, uh, the key is to avoid embarrassing someone, which means having conversations with them in private, which means talking to whoever wants to come to rehearsal that I don't think should come yet, explaining to them in a one-on-one, -on -one, not in front of a group, because that's the surest way to embarrass someone, is expose them in front of a group. You do it privately and personally, and you make and, and, you're, and be specific as to why uh, having someone watching the work at this point could be counterproductive. 
and you're right. It's a little, it's, it's easier when, you know, it's easier when you've got the experience that I have much easier than it would be uh, for a younger director. But I can remember that even as a younger director, I was very careful about protecting the actors from having an audience before they were ready to have an audience, you know, before they were comfortable in their skins and their performances. So it's, it's a, it's a good question. I would say, try to have the conversations with the people who want to be at the rehearsals that you don't want yet and, 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 and think about it and have a good idea. I really, as in, I really want you to see, I really want you to come when I put the first act together. I, I don't want to, I don't want you to see part of the first act or an, an, an out of context mm. number, make it, make it for artistic reasons and, and, and make, and try to keep your producers or whoever else wants to come in your ally and your collaborator and not your antagonist. And, and that's mm. really important to, to treat them. You know, your production would be, would not be happening, but for the producers ability right. to produce it. And so the producer must be taken seriously. And I'm of the school that believes that for every, uh, for every 20 bad notes I might get from, oh, I don't know, a producer or uh, notes that are not, not bad notes, but notes that are not useful for me as a, that are not implementable. Uh, if, for every 20 of those unimplementable notes, there might be one really great idea or a really, or if it's not a great idea, it triggers an idea mm-hmm. and it makes it worth sitting down. So um, to young directors, listen to your producers, make sure you schedule a note session, make sure you, you behave in a way that's respectful. But most importantly, know what you want. Be prepared. Yeah. No, no, be able to answer the questions. What happens in any scene? Who wants what from whom? How badly do they want it? How do they go about getting it? And don't get hung up. <laughs> now you got me going. I can't stop. Don't <laughs> Please get, do. Don't, don't get hung up on, while it's important to know what the character feels, what's more important is to know what the character does because of the way he or she feels. You understand what I'm saying? Yes, absolutely. Uh, an actor will understand that a character is sad. Don't display the sadness. Do what you have to do or what the script will allow you to do to not be sad. Gravitate to the possibility of a, of a happy ending. It's one of my mantras. Find the behavior that, uh, allay, uh, find the behavior that, uh, that, that will protect the possibility of a happy ending as long as possible. So I, I, I help actors that way, you know? Um, anyway, I'm, I'm yattering on, they're banging upstairs. I hope. Well, <laughs> well, and I also just want to say that it seems to me the way you're talking about the actors, the way you're talking about talking to your producers or other guests is that there's a real sense of what gets said to everybody and how that hand, and then what is said personally. What is said in the one-on-one, and those are convers. And as a director, you've got to figure out the appropriate forum where that will be most useful. That's right. That's right. If someone, if an actor has a great idea about something that doesn't involve that actor's is that actor scene, and if that actor wants to protect the possibility of me hearing that idea, that actor will find me and off to the side make the suggestion. 
but not in front of 30 people when which is not going which is going to make me inclined to not it's good it's and it's not gonna it's not designed to make me really listen to the suggestion um yeah anyway yeah 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 thank you no thank you yeah thank course. you so much for that uh, I, um, I hope that makes that makes sense i i um i i believe you know i believe i believe that actors can be helped I, d- directors young directors give your actors actable notes give them notes that they can act not theoretical insight not a, a, a dissertation you know not a critic summation of what the plays give the actors a note they can actually act so that's all i'm done punted <laughs> <laughs> you you're um definitely speaking to the choir because me and gabriel both believe in that note yeah. <laughs> that yeah. you just said there yeah um i i wonder uh i we're, we're close to our time with you but I'm, I'm wondering um gosh you've got to work with so many people i love and so many people i hope to share artistic space with and i'm just wondering who are those artists still in your bucket list that you hope to work with one day Oh, I don't, you know, I don't have much, I don't have many bucket lists, I must say, I don't have a wish list of shows to do. And I've been so and you know, uh, um, yeah, yeah, I, I, there are a bunch of actors that I would love to work with that I've seen recently. But I tend to focus on the great ones that I've had the pleasure of working with, and how much I love working with the greatest thoroughbreds that we have. The, you know, it's, it's, it's fascinating. I've worked with some great people. And if I start mentioning them all, I will leave some someone out and I don't want to do that. <laughs> but you listed several of them in the, in the intro. And I'll just say, and th- this is for anyone else who's contemplating a career in acting or a career in directing, people like Bette Midler and Nathan Lane and Hugh Jackman and Sutton Foster and Rob McClure, what those are to name a few of the most recent ones I've worked with, Bernadette Peters, the one thing they have in common is they can't work hard enough. Hugh Jackman danced for over a year and a half with Warren Carlyle in his studio during COVID to get into shape to do the Dancing and Music Man. Bette Midler, there wasn't a day she wasn't off stretching and vocalizing and perfecting their instrument. Nathan, you know, Nathan gets irritated if there's a break, you know, because he just wants to keep working. Um, and so it's, it's the only, the only thing I, 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 what I would say is I've been lucky enough to work with actors who love to work, who love to try things, who are not precious, who, who, you know, who are not interested in their moments as opposed to bringing the scene to life and what we've got to do to do that. And I mean, life, a director's life is a lot more fun when you've got people who are so willing to try stuff in the room and knowing full well that if it's a bad idea, I'll go, boy, that was a bad idea. We'll laugh at it and we'll move on. Or (laughs) it will lead to something that will make us go, oh, let's try that, you know, which is the way I always work. And then we hit previews. And like I say, there's a reality this year. Previews were totally screwed up for Music Man by COVID um, mm-hmm. in, in a way that was horrifying. I mean, uh, by that I mean, I used the first two weeks of previews to make changes, to make cuts. It's when I've got an audience in front of me, between me and the stage. And I can hear what's working, and I can hear 
what's not working and why it's not working and where we're dwelling too long on this scene, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, all that work was sabotaged by COVID because we, we were spending all our precious first two weeks of previews in trying to keep the show together by playing COVID whack-a-mole, figuring out who was out, who was going to cover. It's, we, we did one performance with, I think, as many as 12 or 14 people out. And finally, when Hugh and Sutton got it, we shut down, as we had to, obviously. But what it meant in terms of my work and Warren's work, choreographer Warren Carlyle, is that we really couldn't address the show and the substantive changes until the third week of previews, which meant we had a truncated amount of time to make the show better. So it just added to the pressure, but it was fine. We, you know, we did what we had to do. It it seems like it's turned out okay. Uh, <laughs> congrats. Well, uh, I know that we have uh, to bring this conversation to a close, and I just want to thank you. It's been such a master class. I have one sort of question for you that we're asking a lot of people who join us, and it's um, kind of a looking back question um, on your career. Um, I think a lot of us who have reached a certain point in our careers say, oh, this thing that I know now, I wish I had known it when I started out. Um, and I wonder if you could take a second and think back to the earliest moments of your career acting and directing. And is there anything Jerry Zacks today wishes they could send back in time to that young artist and, and let them know? Not a lot. Not a lot. Because I always had a pretty great work ethic and I love I loved working. And by that, by that, I mean preparing auditions, coming up with ideas for auditions. I, I, I loved it. I would, if I had anything, I would say to my the younger version of myself, it would be not to take criticism too seriously. You know, uh, but, but if believe in your love of what you're doing, and make sure you work as hard as possible at doing it, and. Try not to be, try not to be, try not to have your heart broken by critics <laughs> is, what, is, is what I would, is what I would say, because, you know, I want people to love my shows. I want everyone to love my shows. I want the intellectuals to love my shows. Sometimes they did and sometimes they haven't, you know, I, I would just, I would just say it's a lot, it's easier to take at this point in life than it was when I was, when I was uh, starting out. But, um. I think that's pretty much it. Well, it's good advice we should all take. Try not to have your heart broken by critics. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Jerry Zachs, thank you so much for being here. Continued success with all of your productions. Uh, we really appreciate the time. This has been a pleasure, and I hope it's been useful to someone out there. Thanks for listening to Talking Direction. Keep up with every new episode by subscribing while you're here. Also, let us know what you think. You can follow us on all social media platforms with the handle at Dramaly. Talking Direction is a program of the Drama League of New York, America's only nonprofit home for directors and the audiences they inspire, offering essential services and resources to artists in their time of need. Please join us in this effort by visiting dramaleague.org and click donate. Or better yet, be a part by becoming a member. Thanks for listening. 